calling all aspiring investment professionals. Get a leg up on the competition. Final registration for the August CFA exam ends on May 14th. Register now to secure your spot. The CFA designation is a gold standard in the investment world, opening doors to high-powered careers and impressive salaries. Head over to cfainstitute.org to register. Don't wait. Take control of your finance career today. Welcome to another episode in our Take 15 series. Uh, today's topic is ethics, and I'm Dennis McLevy. I'm here with my colleagues, Chuck Champion and Dan LaRocco. And uh, Chuck uh, was managing director uh, with pensions at General Motors, where he worked for 37 years. And Chuck, I think you've seen a few ethical dilemmas in your time. Um, I'd like to look at the idea of proxy voting and assume that the investment firm has a policy in place. Does that take care of all ethical dilemmas for the firm? Well, it helps a lot. Uh, I think we, you have to deal with a, a sort of a basic principle here that when you're dealing with proxy voting as an investment advisory firm, the, uh, the shares belong to the client or to the institution upon which you're managing. And so the, uh, the right to vote those proxies are an indicia of that ownership. Uh, the, so you have to vote the, uh, usually you are an agent of that, uh, of those firms. And, uh, the issue is going to result when you have to vote a contentious issue with a, uh, on a company stock, which you, which the company is also a client. Now, a lot of investment firms choose to, uh, to remove that conflict by uh, not owning the stock of companies for which they've been hired to run institutional money. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that certainly is, is a, a way of going about it, but that's a, uh, 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 it's not really ethics, it's an avoidance of the, of the dilemma as opposed to dealing with it. Right. Uh, and as you've sort of intimated, uh, one way of clearly dealing with the aspect of voting uh, against the wishes of management of a of a client's uh, uh, company, you know, stock, is to uh, is to have a set of policies and procedures which delineates how you will vote on on various contentious issues, whether it be uh, you know a, 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 a Staggered board, or golden parachutes, or uh, uh, supermajority voting uh, on certain issues. Um, so that way, you can go to the uh, the client and say, "Well, you know, I understand that you would you you would want us to vote in this particular way on the holdings that we have at the company, but this is the way our policy and procedure says we should do it, uh, and therefore uh, you." Uh, we've got to vote it this way. I'm sorry, this is, we would be violating our fiduciary duty if we didn't. Chuck, do most uh, such uh, policies, proxy voting policies, take into account the fact that the nature of the money being managed may differ? For example, a defined benefit plan versus a defined contribution plan? They, they don't, uh, except as uh, generally the, the policies that the, the firms have 
are a single policy that will handle proxy voting. Uh, situationally, you can have a different situation in uh, defined contribution or 401k plans because there, well, for one thing, the owner is different. Mm -hmm. Uh, the owner is not the sponsoring company, as you can argue, in a defined benefit plan. Uh, the owner is the individual employee that happens to be invested in, in those stocks. Most of the challenge in, uh, in proxy voting and defined contribution plans has to do with company stock. So that's where you might have the, the challenge. Oh, uh, from my experience, the way it's usually handled is that the the trustee of the defined contribution plan uh, or the manager of the company stock portfolio, and there are managers of them because there are fiduciary issues that have to be addressed, not only just proxy voting, uh, has the obligation to vote those shares. Uh, generally, the vote is passed through to the participants. Uh, I still get a proxy statement from General Motors for my General Motors stock that's in the saving stock purchase program mm -hmm. at GM, and uh, I can vote those shares. Mm -hmm. uh, what differs sometimes is the way, what happens with the shares that aren't voted by the participant. Uh, in some cases, uh, there's an agreement that the unvoted shares will be voted in the same manner that the voted shares were, proportional to an issue. Okay. So that if 80% uh, uh, of the uh, participants voted to approve the auditors, then 80% of the unvoted shares would go toward approving the auditors. Okay. Uh, the other way of doing it is that on the, uh, the unvoted shares are voted at the discretion of the trustee in accordance with their own policies and procedures on proxy voting. So that if uh, uh, if thirty percent of the shares were only were voted uh, in total on uh, on the issue of uh, you know the auditors just to keep it non contentious, then the remaining seventy percent would be voted in accordance with the way that the uh, uh, that the, the trustee felt. So. The fact that the 30% was voted 80-20, the 100% uh, could still be voted by the trustee in approval of the, of the audit firm. Chuck, many uh, money managers make use of proxy voting services, uh, at least to advise them. Uh, to what extent um, would uh, it be acceptable to uh, incorporate provisions in your proxy voting policy to perhaps vote against the recommendations of a proxy voting service? Well, I think it would be, uh, in fact, to, to have in your policy that you will always vote in accordance with the recommendations of a proxy anal you know, voting analytic service would, I think, be more problematic than mm -hmm. what you suggested. I think that the, uh, while the ownership of the proxy voting uh, is the, the, the owner of the shares is the one that owns the vote, uh, the other principle is that the proxy voting process is an integral part of the investment decision-making process. Sure. And that only the investment decision-maker who made the decision to be an owner mm -hmm. 
is the one that can ultimately make the decision in the in their own. In, in, you're talking about their own best interest, mm -hmm. which assumedly would be the, in right. the best interest of all the shareholders. Mm -hmm. So you're you're really voting on you're an owner mm -hmm. and sure so you want to do it the best way. Uh, you can certainly welcome to get advice and expert advice and uh, uh, from these services, and they do provide that. I mean, it's a good extension of particularly of firms that don't have, you know, a large staff that they can address the corporate governance issue matters to. Right. But ultimately, you know, if you decide that you disagree with what they say for whatever reason, as long as you've thought about it and can document it, that you not document the reasons why you did it and they didn't, but document that you gave this thoughtful consideration. Mm -hmm. uh, I think you're you're right on spot with your ethical obligations in proxy voting. Now, Chuck, moving uh, from proxy voting into the question of front running. Mm -hmm. Front running to me seems a very clear question, and I don't really well, see ethical dilemmas there. But without getting into actual companies or firms, can you give some hypothetical well, there? Yeah, well, let, let's take a very direct hypothetical. Uh, you're having a, a morning meeting uh, of the uh, of the research department, and one of the analysts gets up and recommends the purchase of, of XYZ company stock. And, uh, and you immediately leave the meeting, run to your desk, phone your broker, and place an order uh, to buy the stock. What's anything wrong with this picture? Well, yeah, obviously... Uh, there's been an ethical violation, if not a, uh, a, a regulatory violation, mm -hmm. on the part of this person. Uh, the principles that you're dealing with here are, uh, first and foremost, the client always comes first. Justice Stu Leonard, a retailer up in Connecticut, had a big stone outside of his Westport, Connecticut store that said, rule number one, the customer is always right. And then rule number two was, if the customer is wrong, reread rule number one. Well, our translation of that for, you know, for investment firms is the client always comes first. And if the client doesn't come first, reread that first rule. Mm -hmm. uh, in this case, the client, you know, you have the client first, then arguably you have the firm, and then you have the individual. Mm -hmm. And that's sort of the order of things. Mm -hmm. This situation clearly violated the, uh, uh, you know, putting yourself ahead of both the client and the firm. Mm -hmm. But that's why the I, use of this information that wasn't yet acted upon. Mm -hmm. But that's why I don't see it as a dilemma because it's just clear well, cut. It it's probably wrong. and it probably is not. What I what I you know again it's an exercise that you go through with this hypothetical to try to see how you might think about things. So there would be sort of follow on questions to this. Like for example if you went back and uh, you bought 100 shares of the stock or 10,000 shares, would that make any difference? Mm -hmm. And see, in doing this, I would be talking to people. People would respond to that. It wouldn't just be me. At the end of the day, if you're asking me what would it, I don't think the size makes any difference. You can't be a little bit pregnant, as right. they say. Uh, so, you know, if you did it for a share or, you know, ten, a market-moving volume, uh, you're still in ethical violation of the principle of putting up front-running. Uh, you might ask, well, what if I sold rather than bought? The idea was to, you know, the recommendation was to, mm -hmm. was to 
my, I ran out and sold. Mm-hmm. You know, can't, can't, that can't be wrong, can it? Well, again, however perversely you're using that information, you're using it for yourself. I'm assuming you're not acting irrationally. Mm-hmm. You may have some idea that this analyst has always been wrong. Mm-hmm. So you're going out there and taking advantage of that because once the, the news gets out of what his recommendation is or you've acted on it, the stock price is going to go down, not up. Uh, but that doesn't change the fact that you've used this information for your own benefit mm-hmm. as opposed to the benefit of the client or secondarily the firm. Uh, then there's a the question, well, what about, what if you're a client relations professional that's just listening in uh, or uh, as opposed to a portfolio manager? Uh, and again, you might say, well, the circumstances are different because I'm not really part of the firm's investment decision-making process. Uh, but to a certain extent, that that may even make it worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, a sort of a collateral question on that is that I'm a portfolio manager, and I didn't run out to 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 purchase for my account. I ran out to purchase for my own portfolio's account for my own clients mm-hmm. before the others did. Mm-hmm. And here it's a matter. Well, yeah, you took care of your clients. But you do, weren't pay, the firm wound up not pay, being paying uh, reasonable attention to treating all of their clients with this with an investment Fairness idea to all. Fair, yeah. fairly. So those are sort of the you know you get into this discussion sure. and that's how you sort of get a sense of of what these ethical dilemmas are all about and why nothing is ever really totally black and white. Though I have to admit that front running tends to be the closest that you get because you have such a defined line between whether you're operating for the client or for yourself. Well, let me take another black and white issue. If I am GIPS compliant, Mm -hmm. then I feel that I'm giving my prospective clients very fair information. And so is there any ethical dilemma that could arise there? There could be because... Uh, you know, being GIPS compliant, having uh, you know all of your portfolios in one or more composites, and have, showing the results for all time periods, uh, and uh, you know, so it's a full and fair disclosure and well footnoted for all of the disclosure requirements that you have to have, uh, and you put it and you have it bound up in a really nice book, uh, and this is something that uh, that all of your relationship people and your salespeople take with them when they go out uh, or that your marketing people use as at least the the backup for their sales and marketing materials. Well, two instances, okay. One, the salesperson goes out to his prospective client and he sets down the book in the center of the table and he says, this has all of our results, and we're GIPS compliant, and we have been since 1984. And uh, mm-hmm. but you know, you've got a very uh, uh, unique sort of uh, mandate that you want to see. So I wanted to show you, you know, these results that I've put together for certain specific accounts that we have. Uh, and you'll notice that these clients, which are very much like the mandate that you want us for, have all beaten the benchmark by well over the average of what our okay. composite is. Done. Okay. Uh, is there something wrong with this picture? And again, under the under the terms of GIPS, 
you've used supplemental information in a somewhat skewed way to make a misleading presentation about what your overall performance capabilities are. And you say, well, but you're tailoring that to the needs of the client. Well, the question that then comes up is if these are tailored to the needs of the client, why aren't, if they're so unique, why aren't they in a different separate composite from the ones that you pulled them from? Because you're supposed to try to create composites that are internally consistent. You wouldn't mix growth and value stocks in a single composite and then pull out the growth ones when you wanted to show it to a growth client or whatever. The other way, other situation that you might run into is that the sales and marketing people put together their brochure and the back of it is the GIPS report. And the front of it is similar to the present day. You know, here's a representative account that we have or here's our results from, you know, for the last 37 months, which as Dean LeBaron said in the development of the standards, you know, anybody that can pick the beginning and ending date and the length of the time period will be able to outperform anything, you know, given enough flexibility. So, I mean, those are sort of the things that can come out of somebody that's in GIPS compliance, but we're not out there regulating presentation. People aren't watching over your shoulder. And remember, ethics at the core of it is doing the right thing when you don't have to. Well, Chuck, thank you very much. And that's really a wonderful way to end our episode, doing what's right. Thank you very much. Copyright 2008, CFA Institute. No part may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, electronic, mechanical, recording, or otherwise, without the express prior written permission of CFA Institute. This program is designed to give accurate and authoritative information in regard to the subject matter covered. It is distributed with the understanding that CFA Institute is not engaged in rendering legal, accounting, tax, investment, or other expert advice. If legal advice or other expert assistance is required, the services of a competent professional should be sought.